Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome uh, to today's event, uh, jointly hosted by the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations and the Institute for Policy Research at the University of Bath. My name is Nick Pierce. I'm Professor of Public Policy and Director of the, of the IPR Institute at the University. And I'm delighted today to be joined uh, for this event by Professor Lorraine Whitmarsh and Pete Dyson here uh, at the University uh, for a masterclass on how behaviour change evidence can improve policymaking in practice and with a particular focus on environmental and transport uh, policy. Um, we're going to look today at case studies of what works and what doesn't work um, in behaviour change uh, and its implementation in public policy and the insights from behavioural sciences, from social psychology uh, and other disciplines into policy design. Um, Professor Whitmarsh is Professor of Environmental Psychology at the University of Bath, Director of the Centre for Climate Change and Social Transformations, um, does a lot of work on behaviour change and climate policy in particular and uh, advising governments, advising civil society organisations and others on how the insights from behavioural sciences and psychological sciences can be introduced into policymaking. Pete Dyson is a behavioural scientist at the university, a doctoral researcher, uh, and uh, previously was principal behavioural scientist at the Department for Transport, where he established a new behavioural science uh, team. So two great speakers for us today. What they're going to do is Lorraine and P uh, Pete are going to give their presentations, one after the other, and then we're going to have a QA and a uh, where you can uh, feed questions in. Please do so in the... Um, uh, the Q&A function, and then I'll, I'll go through those questions, uh, sift them around and uh, and put them to Lorraine and Pete to answer uh, in, in the final final section of the of the session we have today. So uh, be ready and be primed to uh, to ask your questions. Uh, please note just a few things on housekeeping before we get started. Your cameras and microphones will remain uh, switched off. So uh, just post your questions in the Q&A. You won't be able to do it uh, in the chat or through a microphone. The session is being recorded and will make it available uh, online as a podcast and a video, uh, which you'll be able to find on the the IPR website. So thanks very much for uh, joining us today. And I'm now going to hand over to uh, Lorraine to Lorraine Whitmarsh to uh, introduce and start the session. Lorraine. Thanks very much indeed, Nick. And thank you, everybody, for joining us today. Um, so I will share my screen. We've got some slides to show you to as we as we talk through uh, our presentations. So hopefully, <clears throat> hopefully you're seeing that. So yeah, we, we, we wanted to give a bit of a sort of a double act, really, in terms of some of the academic literature around behaviour change, but also some of the uh, work that goes on within the policy context in terms of applying that. So a sort of more practice based um, view. Um, and so I'll give the more academic uh, perspective first. And I guess it makes sense to start off with some some of the theories of behaviour. Now, I've just got to slightly terrify you with this. Um, uh, behavior is complex is is the message I'm trying to convey uh, with this image. Now, this image comes from uh, the foresight uh, project that the government ran uh, a few years ago on obesity. So they were looking at mapping all of the different influences on obesity. Um, and while you, I'm sure you can't see any of the detail, you can maybe make out some of the blobs that represent some of the major categories of influence that span everything from individual physiology uh, through to um, food production systems and consumption, uh, social psychology, individual psychology, and then the physical environment as well. Um, so a whole range of different factors that, that um, shape our diets and the extent to which we uh, that manifests in, in obes obesity or not. <clears throat> um, 
Now, that's hugely complex, and that's very difficult to actually then make sense of. So where can we intervene in that system to actually change behavior? But it's worth at least just putting out one option for how we might present some of the influences on behavior. Um, another one comes from also another foresight project that we were involved with, uh, which was trying to map the influences on travel choices in particular. Uh, and this was the Future of Mobility project uh, from three or four years ago. And here we simplify things a little bit, but there's still a bit of complexity at the, at the heart, the blue blob there um, are the are two of the major types of travel choices that we might face, which mode of travel to, to, to use. So whether a bike or a bus or a car, for example, and then whether you choose to own a car and which type of car you might choose. And those choices are influenced by psychological factors, motivations, like um, how much does it cost? Is it going to be a pleasant journey? Will I have flexibility and so on? But also unconscious factors that we might not be aware are shaping our decisions, but we know through research are like social norms. What's what's the normal way of traveling? What would be uh, what, what are my friends and family doing? And kind of, in, you know, what, what implicitly is the right thing to do? And what does this type of car say about my personality? So there's symbolism and things that might be conveyed through a particular choice. So, so those sorts of things are maybe more psychological factors. But then sitting behind those, the green blob might be things like how much money have I got my income? How much, um, what, are, what are my various caring responsibilities and roles, which mean I have to take children somewhere or an elderly parent somewhere. So those sorts of travel mobility needs and circumstances and, and so on, where do I live, um, will be driving many of those sort of individual level uh, factors. But then, and I always think this should be a bigger blob, really, the transport environment is the orange bit at the top, which is all of the physical um, environment, the ur urban design, for example. So um, how much space is there to walk and cycle? How attractive is it? Um, how quick is it to go by that means? How regular, frequent, et cetera, are the public transport services where I live? Um, the cost of those things and so on. So lots of things captured within that that fundamentally shape our behavior as well. And, the, and really one of the key points I want to make here is that our attitudes are really only one influence on our behavior. So it's, it's, it's rarely enough to just motivate people to change their behavior and say, it would be a really good idea to reduce your carbon footprint. You have to enable people as well. You have to provide the physical and economic and social environment that enables people to make those choices as well. And this is why it's worth saying as well that we often act differently in different contexts. So we might do one thing in the home uh, and, and something perhaps quite different at work. So we've seen, for example, in terms of energy saving behaviors, recycling behaviors, that you might do those things at home, but you you may well not do thing, those things at work, perhaps because the physical context or the motivational factors are just different across these different these different uh, locations. So where does that leave us? <clears throat> well, how can we reduce down this complexity in a way that might then uh, shed light on how to intervene? One of the uh, common theories of, of behavior that, that we use a lot is the theory of planned behavior. And, and that's what you're seeing here. And it basically says there are three main types of influence on our behavior. Um, and the first one is attitudes. That's what do I think? What do I think and feel about something? Do I think this is a good idea? The second category is 
subjective norm or also called social norm. So it's really what do other people do? What's normal? What do other people think I should do as well? What's the sort of the feeling about the right thing to do within this situation? Those are sort of social influence factors that are also very important. And then the third one, perceived behavioural control, is to what extent is it actually possible to do this or how easy is this to, to do? And these are the sort of pragmatic, logistical, maybe physical factors like, well, there just isn't a bus service where I live, so that's not an option for me. So those three main categories of behaviour shape our intentions to act and then in turn our, our behaviours. One big caveat with this theory, though, while it's very parsimonious, it's quite simple, so it reduces that complexity we've seen so far, is that it, it it's not that accurate. So actually, meta-analyses that have used this suggest that it only explains about 25% of the variance in behaviour. So it's not it's not great. And partly that's because not all of our behaviour is intentional. So quite a lot of the time we do something that completely bypasses um, conscious decision making. And it's very habitual. It's just driven by the fact that we always do that in this situation. And so the context is cueing our, beha our behaviour and it's not an intention. So that's one caveat here is, is intention isn't always the, the route to behaviour. Nevertheless, there's a, there's a lot to be said for the three main ingredients here, which um, do represent some of the, the major drivers of our behaviour. I wanted to include this because it's a very different view of behaviour. What I've shown you so far is coming out more from psychology, from the more sociological literature, there tends to be a focus less on the individual and the decision-making processes of the individual, and much more on the context in which behaviours emerge. And so it takes a much more sort of structural approach and a more and, and, and behaviour is seen as emergent out of the sort of properties um, of the context. So social practice theory says there are basically three sort of elements of a social practice, which sort of is a behavior, but it's a socially recognized um, activity. So it could be showering, for example, is an example that you see here on the right. Um, and so showering arises because of three elements, materials, that's the physical environment and technologies come in here. So it's, do I have a shower? And is there water supply coming into my home that provides hot water to enable me to shower? So that's the sort of materials element. The competences bit is that is another blob. That's like, do I know how a shower works? And am I familiar with this technology? And it's not a very sophisticated technology, so it doesn't require very much in the way of competence, but it does require some knowledge of how a shower functions. In other contexts, there may be more know-how involved in using a particular um, piece of infrastructure or technology. Meanings is the red blob, and that's the sort of social, cultural norms and symbolism and beliefs that might accompany a particular practice. And what comes out of the work on showering in this literature is that showering isn't just about getting clean, it's about waking up, it's about feeling fresh, it's about preparing yourself for some, some activity. So it's gone beyond just a functional, I don't want to smell, to actually having a wider set of sort of meanings and, and, and so on. And some of that, you know, is maybe um, links to the way in which um, marketers uh, sell um, products linked to showering and so on. So that's quite a different view that, that sees these things as interacting. And it's not a linear process of one causes another, but actually these are, are interlocking. 
sets of influences on our on our decision making and our behavior that, that that cause or give rise to something like showering or driving or cooking. <clears throat> um, another way of looking at this is trying to sort of group together these different influences in a way that might be more tractable to policymakers. And so I wanted to include this as well. This is the COMB model, which you might have come across, which is the which stands for capability, opportunity, and motivation. Those three sets of factors are thought to, to predict behavior um, and interact with each other. And, and you can see the similarities with some of the things I've already shown. The capability that came out um, from the social practice theory. Opportunity is part of the sort of materials that we've just seen, but it's also that perceived behavioral control. So it's the physical and social environment. Can I do it? And then the yellow bit is all the motivational, all the attitudinal type factors that we've seen as well um, from the first model. And there is a two-way interaction here. So, so behavior can feed back into some of these things. So I might try something and that might reinforce my motivation, for example, to, to keep doing something. So there's a, an acknowledgement that it isn't necessarily a linear process. There's, a, there's some feedbacks there. So this is actually quite widely used in policy uh, circles. So it, and, and it forms the basis of a lot of um, interventions. So I think it's worth, it's worth having this quite centrally in, in the rest of the talk. Um, but I want to move on now to thinking about, well, how do we change behavior? If we think about behavior change being potentially starting a new behavior, stopping an existing behavior, or increasing or decreasing the level of an existing behavior, what are the sorts of interventions that we can uh, apply? And, and really, it's about thinking about these different sets of factors that shape our behavior. How can we how can we play with some of those levers? So I've mentioned the COMB model. Well, if you this this that you see here is the behavior change wheel that that Mickey and colleagues have developed, which builds on the COMB model. So at the heart of it, you see capability, opportunity, and motivation. All of those factors that we know are drivers of behavior or sources of behavior, as they're called here. And sitting around that are various types of interventions from persuasion and education through to restrictions, environmental restructuring, training, incentivization, and so on. And then um, a sort of set of policy categories that might be sort of more familiar and grouped together some of those things around that. And essentially, you can hopefully sort of see that there are a whole range of levers that could be used that, that kind of um, address one or more of these different sources of behavior. So, for example, motivation. If people don't know what to do or they don't know why they should do it, maybe they don't see the benefits particularly of changing their diet, um, we can give them information. We can, we can highlight the benefits of dietary change and maybe we can show them which behaviors are the most effective. So to give you one example from a, a national trust menu, um, that uh, trialed putting CO2 information against different items on the menu. You can see that the lamb stew has a much higher carbon footprint than any of the uh, more vegetarian-based options on the menu. So if you were in concerned about climate change and wanted to reduce your carbon footprint, you could uh, adjust your choice based on that information. And so that might be quite um, influential. But what we do know is that usually those sorts of information provision approaches by themselves aren't usually enough. We need to do wider things. And so 
in the top right here, you see a picture of a cafe where potentially there is an opportunity there to actually restructure that context to make plant-based options more available, more attractive, more prominent, maybe change the price of those things uh, so that people are much more um, uh, sort of nudged towards those plant-based options in a way that doesn't even necessarily mean um, that they need to sort of deliberate over information about the impact of those choices, but they, they're presented um, in a more favorable way. So that's sort of gives you the sort of, there are a whole menu really, uh, excuse the pun, of, of different options for changing behaviors that come out of that behavior change wheel. And I, I rather like this way of distinguishing those, those different intervention types into downstream versus upstream. Um, and the behavioral insights team uses a similar sort of typology where downstream relates to interventions that try to influence people's choices directly. And usually this is through information provision, whether that be labels or advertising or campaigns or more structured sort of education approaches, or maybe social influence could come in here too. Here you're trying to intervene at the individual level and change individuals' decision-making processes. Upstream interventions are where you're trying to influence the context of action. So actually make um, it, um, desirable choices cheaper, uh, make them more available, maybe remove um, less desirable choices altogether and change the built environment potentially as well to sort of uh, enable people to change their behavior. So you've got economic measures, regulatory measures and so on coming into this sort of um, approach. Um, and really what I want to highlight is that by themselves, downstream measures tend not to be very effective. So there was a recent meta-analysis that suggested they were about two or three percent effective in changing behavior. Uh, this was specifically looking at low carbon choices, um, whereas upstream measures could be com completely effective. You could completely remove an undesirable uh, behavior if you wanted through upstream measures. Ideally, I think it's worth saying you want to combine down downstream and upstream because we need to inform people about the sorts of upstream measures that we might want to implement as well. So it's there's likely to be a downstream element of uh, information provision um, whenever you do some sort of effective upstream uh, measure to bring people with you. But um, yeah, by themselves, downstream tends to be less effective. And there is, it's worth saying, a huge um, literature on how to do downstream interventions well. So this is sort of information campaigns and persuasion we know we need trusted sources, for example. It matters who's telling you that information. They have to be seen as credible. They have to be seen as somebody who is like you in some way. So trusted uh, sources. Your message needs to align with what your audience cares about. And so at the moment, for example, people are very concerned about their wallet and cost of living. So can we reframe what we want people to do in ways that highlight the economic benefits to um, the public? But of course, publics differ. So different concerns or values might be emphasized to different segments. We can also use social influence processes and social norm-based messaging. So if we tell people that actually most people are recycling, then that can help persuade people to think, oh, this is normal. Actually, if I'm not recycling, I'm not doing what most people are doing. So people like to conform to norms, so that can have some effect. 
and we have we can we can alter the way in which information is framed to be more positive versus negative in the in the environmental context there's a sort of history of using fear quite a lot to try to scare people into doing the right thing because uh, there are so many environmental risks that we need to address like climate change well we have to be very careful with fear because it can disempower and, and demotivate people we have to uh, if we use any sort of fear we have to accompany it with a sense that people can address this risk effectively so a sense of self-efficacy i can do something about this and so in the health context that has worked to some extent with smoking campaigns you can scare people but you have to give people the means to address that risk more effective tends to be positive messaging where you're motivating people to move towards something desirable and so actually there are health benefits or financial benefits to do to doing this thing so positive messaging is more often than not tends to be more effective and targeted information is also uh, more effective than blanket campaigns or, or mass information provision so we can target information at the time and place when somebody is making a decision and that could be putting a label on a product when they're they're choosing a particular product in a, in a uh, consumer situation uh, or maybe putting stickers on light switches for example so at the point at which you're doing something provide information we can give people feedback uh, for example smart meters energy meters that show you how much energy using you're using at a particular time means that energy information is then much more useful than if you give people a bill every three months or six months, they can't translate that into a specific action that they've taken. <clears throat> you can target information to the specific needs that somebody might have. So the specific route that they need to travel from their home to their workplace, what are the low carbon modal options for that route? And so door-to-door -door marketing can be helpful in that sense, making specific individualized travel plans. Um, and then we can also recognize that people have different values as well. And so we can emphasize different benefits of action or, or tailor that information to different, um, different sorts of uh, values or beliefs that people have. That segmentation approach has been very effective in, in marketing. And this is one example of that, actually, from a, a study where sort of market, classic marketing study where they were trying to look at how to market uh, bottled water. And so you can see here the three experimental conditions that they, they had. The top one is the control group. So they just showed the brand name of the, of the product. The second group were told this was supposed to be the personal benefit group that you would feel good if uh, you uh, consume this product. So it would refresh you and it would make you more alert, et cetera. And then the, the bottom group, this was the environmental benefit where more of the uh, environmental benefit was emphasized. It, they were told um, it, would it would reduce landfill through, through, through using less plastic in their bottles, which is probably a bit tenuous with plastic water uh, bottles. But anyway, that was, their, that was the third group. And basically what they found was that consumers who had stronger environmental values found the third type of messaging more effective than the other ones people that valued personal benefits over environmental benefits found the second message more effective it was more effective in uh increasing adoption of that product so we know that segmenting audiences can work that actually tailoring information uh, can make it more effective and I've touched on this but this is a, an example here of 
our social norms can also work to um, change behavior. So in one quite classic study, um, they wanted guests in a hotel to reuse their towels in order to reduce water and energy use by the hotel. And they put these signs in bathrooms saying um, in, in one group, 75% of guests in this hotel use their towel more than once. And then in another condition, they just said, please reuse your towel. And what they found was that um, the this one that you see here saying that most people do this was far more effective than the standard just asking people to do it. Um, uh, so, yeah, people do conform to social norms and that can work. And speaking of social influence, um, people do uh, are influenced by the people around them and particularly people that they are uh, close to and people who they see as similar to them. So they're close social networks. We know, for example, from the work on adoption of low carbon innovations um, and other technologies that there are neighborhood effects. So if you live in an area where other people have got solar panels on their roofs or have adopted an electric car, you are more likely to adopt those, those innovations. It's because people like you in your community, in a similar living situation, have got this technology, it works for them. So you're sort of seeing this could be something that works for you. So that influences your decision-making. So there are physical proximity uh, can, can be a factor here. But in other contexts, there have been uh, interventions which kind of bring together groups of households, kind of similar people, maybe friendship groups, and create sort of eco teams. And they basically try to compete to reduce their carbon footprint over time. And they're sharing information with each other. So they're trusted sources. They're saying, well, how did you, you know, reduce your waste? Well, oh, yeah. So, so tips from each other. Um, but also there was this kind of um, this support and this comparative and competitive element as well that, that people wanted to kind of do better and improve over time. So that had a durable effect, but obviously there's a question about how scalable that is. And it's also worth saying it matters when we intervene in these sorts of um, ways. And this is a big area of research for us at the moment is on moments of change. Because we know that actually it can make a big difference when you try to change behavior. A lot of our behavior is habitual. So we're often on autopilot. If you think about your journey to work in the morning, probably you don't think, how am I going to get to work today? You just use the same mode of travel and probably the same route that you always do in that situation. So it's the context itself has sort of triggered, got to get to work, I'll jump in the car or I'll get on my bike. So you've bypassed that deliberate decision-making process that I mentioned at the beginning that is often assumed in some theories of behavior. And it's, and it's a habit that's driving your behavior. And that means it's very difficult to change that behavior because you're not engaging, you're not thinking about all the different options over, open to you. You're not thinking, oh, yes, well, there is a discount on the bus and so on. So people tend to ignore information about alternatives when they have a strong habit. And that means it can be difficult to change those behaviors. But when um, habits are disrupted for various reasons, and that can be uh, when you change job, when you move house, maybe when you have a baby, when you retire, um, or it could be COVID. Um, so wider societal disruptions. Those sorts of times of disruption make brilliant opportunities to actually reconfigure people's habits because people are sort of 
snapped out of their autopilot and they're actually thinking about how am I going to get to work now that I've moved house, for example. So information and incentives and interventions become much more salient and influential. So in a classic study some years ago, they gave uh, citizens um, in a German city some information about the bus service where they lived and a one-day pass to try the bus for free. And what they found was amongst the people who had moved house in the last few weeks, that intervention effect over doubled the uptake of bus use. Whereas amongst people who had not recently moved house, they had the same intervention, but it did not significantly increase their bus use. So this is because habits were disrupted. It provided an opportunity to, for people to actually pay attention to this, this incentive that was given to them and it worked much more effectively. But what I've been talking about so far is sort of broadly in that downstream sort of category. It's, it's sort of people at the individual level thinking in, in different ways, but we know there are big barriers to behavior change. As I've touched on at the beginning, attitudes by themselves aren't the only thing that shape our behavior. The context is also really important. And that can, that the context captures things like social norms. Um, and so is it normal to have a big house full of gadgets um, and to fly on holiday and to eat meat? Those sorts of cultural norms can be very difficult to sort of overcome. But there might be um, economic barriers. So the, the cost of low carbon options is often higher than low carbon, uh, than high carbon alternatives. Uh, convenience, physical um, barriers as well. Like maybe there just isn't uh, a, a public transport route where I live. Maybe the, um, there is no bus service, for example. So all of those things make it very difficult to translate even the best intentions into behavior. So what can we do? Well, we need these upstreams, upstream interventions that I've mentioned. Um, and there are lots that, that fall into this category. Some of these are economic factors, uh, economic measures. So there may be subsidies or um, charges or taxes or levies of various kinds. These are certainly one very effective category of intervention. Uh, we've, we saw that last year in Germany where they um, subsidize very significantly the public transport system as a way of reinvigorating the economy after COVID, but actually it also encouraging low carbon modal shift and, and that was very effective. And a recent <clears throat> review paper showed that congestion charging uh, is actually the most effective way of cutting car use um, by up to 33% in the case of the London congestion charge and had wider benefits besides just reducing emissions. And, uh, and, and that worked very well because it also provided um, money to improve the alternatives. So economic measures are a huge category, but in a, sim in a slightly different um, vein, um, we can also change the defaults and make it easier for people to do the right thing. We know that people go with the status quo. They go with whatever is the default option. Um, and so one way we can change behavior is just to change the default to be the thing we want people to do. And so with one, one particular example that was really effective was when a Swiss energy company shifted its um, quarter of a million customers onto a renewable energy tariff as the default. And um, even though it cost them slightly more to have green energy, up to 90% of customers stuck with that default and didn't opt out to have the, the fossil, the slightly cheaper fossil tariff. Whereas when they had to opt in to have the green tariff, only 3% did that. 
So that was so increasing from 3% to almost 90%. And that was a durable change is, is a huge, hugely effective shift that just plays on this, this status quo bias that people have, that the, the default, they go with that. Um, and then there are other things as well that come under upstream that, that really are about sort of regulation and providing supporting infrastructure. And this is about changing the options available for people, essentially. And so this could be in the transport context, reallocating road space away from cars and giving some of that space to cyclists and pedestrians so that it means it's more difficult and less attractive to drive and also safer and, and easier for people to cycle and walk. And we know that on average that that can be very effective to reduce traffic. Uh, similarly, low traffic neighborhoods, home zones, other things sort of come under this kind of physical infrastructure category that that mean that people are, are, are encouraged and enabled to do things in different ways. Um, and um, and even just it doesn't necessarily have to be about kind of physically sort of uh, changing things, but even just increasing increasing the availability of certain products and options can work. So an example was a really nice study where they doubled the proportion of vegetarian options in a number of canteens. Previously, it had been one in four. They increased that to two in four. So you could still choose meat if you wanted to, but you just had a greater choice of veggie options. And that increased plant-based sales by up to 80% in some cases. So these sorts of, these sorts of measures can also be very effective. The, I think, final thing that I'll be saying, though, is that uh, it's best when you combine interventions because there are usually lots of different factors that shape our behaviour, lots of drivers and lots of barriers to behaviour change. Um, and so we need a range of different measures, both the downstream and the upstream. Um, and so we know, for example, that just in just making low carbon options attractive isn't enough. We also need to shut down or disincentivize high carbon options um, to, to break habits, but also to really shift those kind of incentives. This, just to give you one example, um, uh, from a study on coffee cup reuse, when they just gave people information about why they should be reusing their coffee cups, that only changed behavior by 1%. When they added in various different other elements, including providing, giving a charge on disposable cups, so you were charged more, uh, and also giving out free reusable cups, that increased the uptake of reusable cups by, by 38%. So it makes a difference when you, like bringing in more things can usually uh, significantly increase the effectiveness. And another completely different example is from um, what we've seen in terms of smoking rates over the last uh, few decades, that a majority of people used to smoke in 1950, we're now down to about 14%. And that's due to incrementally bringing in a series of different policy measures from information provision through to um, prices, uh, changing pricing um, through taxation, um, non-price measures like quitting services, regulation, and, and so on and so on. And so all of those things together has, has really enabled that um, behavior to shift radically and the norms around that behavior to shift radically over time. But just before I close, I want to just make one final point, which is that people do need to be part of the decision-making process. And so where we are intervening significantly in people's lives, and we'll need to do that to address things like climate change in particular, um, we need to engage people and bring them with us. That's gonna be critical for acceptance. And we can do that in lots of ways, 
from simply surveying people to find out what's important to them to maybe bringing them in in a more significant and deliberative way through things like citizens assemblies so they have a stronger voice in defining and, and scoping um, uh, policies uh, we need to actually have understand what's important for people what might be the barriers to change and to design uh, policies with that in mind because solution imposing solutions on people tends not to work moreover that more participatory decision making tends to actually improve the quality of decisions because you know it's going to be workable because you've addressed some of these maybe pragmatic concerns that people have oh i did want to flag before i definitely before i finish um a recent report which i think is actually um, highlights a lot of the things that i've said um which is uh, a report that came out from the house of lords environment and climate change committee uh in late 2022 and this looked at the role of um, behaviour change in addressing climate and environmental goals. I was an advisor uh, to this and so kind of saw how the uh, evidence was compiled. And I think um, it says some, something, some very important things, not just about how to achieve behaviour change, and it's that which sort of emphasises a lot of the things I've said, that we need uh, a range of different measures, for example, we need to bring people with us too. Um, but it also very significantly criticised the government in terms of what they've done so far to enable that, that actually um, they they conclude that government action to change behaviour uh, in relation to climate environment has been inadequate and there is a significant risk of not meeting our environmental and climate change targets as a result of that. So I do recommend that particular report for some quite specific and practical insights um, in terms of how to get behaviour change into policy. And that does contrast with the way in which um, behaviour change has been uh, framed within a lot of the climate policy at, so far within, within the UK. So if you look at the forward to the net zero strategy, it really does sort of say we don't need to change our behaviour too much. We'll be adopting a few more technologies, but there is no need to sacrifice our quality of life or, 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 or reduce demand. But I think as we will see, that is not um, that does not match up with the scientific evidence of what we need to do so the I won't go through the recommendations from the House of Lords report but um, it sort of emphasizes a lot of the things that I've I've been saying so far so I do recommend having a look at that um, and I think these are questions that I, I could potentially have come back to in the discussion but it would be great to hear I think from you about the behaviors you're interested in where communication comes in and where you think um, the sorts of interventions uh, that I've highlighted might help address the behaviours you're interested in. But I'm handing over now to Pete, who's going to come and sit in my chair and provide a practical perspective. Thank you, Lorraine, and hello, everyone. It's uh, great to be here. Um, yeah, I hope in the next uh, 15 or 20 minutes I get to bridge some of this question of the title suggests how do we put the behavior change evidence that we've just heard um which is a really comprehensive um coverage of the different um uh, theories you could approach and the evidence base empirical as it is or in different uh situations when push comes to shove uh what are you able to um what are you able to implement um and how are you going to do it uh i could speak uh for myself here but with some perspective um having worked at the Department for Transport in 2020 to 2022, um, for which um, the COVID-19 response 
was a very significant part of the work, um, as was sustainable gravel behavior change um, and catalyzed um, the recruitment of more behavioral scientists within the department, in many ways bringing into line along with other government departments that have dedicated um, behavioral insights, um, of course, social research and behavioral science functions. Um, before I start, I mean, I think there's some worthwhile perspectives and challenges that you face when, you, when, as I say, push comes to shove. Um, you have to decide we can only necessarily do one of these potential measures. We can't do all of them. Um, which ones should we do? Which things should be prioritized? Um, how will it affect different people differently? So um, distributed impacts. Um, and even what would the effect of implementing one thing be um, on other policies that you might have? Um, and indeed, with respect to COVID-19, how would a temporary policy be um, be removed? Like what is the exit strategy um, for a measure that can only be um, put in temporarily? So lots of things to think about. Um, here's a useful um, first step, though, which is to put... Um, put behavior change um, and behavioral science in its wider context. So behavior change gives you a really cross-cutting view of the whole sets of influences on people's behavior. So if we wind back to some earlier slides, we saw how travel behavior be influenced not just by the person's um, beliefs or attitudes and the situation, but obviously also the quality of the um, transport provision, its affordability, um, its safety, the material factors of the person, um, any given individual can't really change. A cross-cutting role is really useful when you see there's different roles for different disciplines. So language differs here, but it can be helpful to think of social research, which is commonplace in many organizations, um, answering the critical questions of what people are currently thinking, feeling, and doing. Uh, and there are qualitative and quantitative sort of research methods that will get you a really good insight and depth into what they're doing. But then behavioral science is challenged to sort of say, so what might we do to better understand that from theory? So things that people wouldn't necessarily tell you, but insights across um, the psychological disciplines would, would, would suggest. Uh, and then how might we influence, how might we address some of those um, concerns? Intersecting with all of this is then evaluation, which is us trying to work out, um, has something made an impact or not? Who was affected? Where, when, why, and what can we learn from this? Uh, and disciplines of evaluation obviously can exist without you needing to be a psychologist, say, um, you can set up quality trials with better samples and different experimental methods to work out whether something made a difference or not. And that's probably where the um, public policy research angle of this would, um, would certainly come in. Secondly, then, you need to say, if these are our questions or our ways of working, then what might our actual methods be? As I touched upon, um, social research can look at methods of qualitative interviews and group work and um, surveys of analysis and public engagement and what, what is commonly called um, can be called deliberative research. Uh, behavioral science can bring to bear its models, as we've seen, um, and those models can be applied to looking at how we might optimize something. 
how we might take something that's already out there and try and make it better uh, or bring to bear um, and create new uh, policies or interventions. Something behavioral science is well adept at, and I'll talk about in a couple of the published studies you could you could read more about are online experiments. So in a time constrained world where things move rapidly, online experiments are a way of testing um, policies and messaging conditions. Um, in a controlled environment, you wouldn't be able to get out um, out in the real world. And as I touched on, evaluation has a range of um, um, uh, methods at its disposal. Let's go into a worked example. So if we cast our minds back going on uh, two years, um, the outset of the COVID pandemic uh, elicited a number of rapid policy measures from a whole range of different departments. Uh, one of these in the UK was the Fix Your Bike voucher scheme, where uh, a £50 voucher was issued, could be issued to people um, to get people cycling, knowing that um, there were restrictions and difficulties in providing um, public transport. So behavior change is useful when we think about this framework at moving people, moving the set of even early on the set of objectives of what we're going to change. So the first objective could be, we just want to get people back onto bikes. We want to, um, we want to get people cycling. A more specific objective might be, we want to get broken bikes. So ones that are completely non-functional bikes. I think that's the typical aspiration, the ones that are in garages and sheds and backs of gardens. We want to bring them into the fleet and get them working again. We can then be more specific and say we want to get people uh, using those bikes for commuting and essential trips. So you could be more specific about them being um, valuable transport trips. And then even more specific again about saying, well, we want those that use of that bicycle to replace um, for sustainability goals uh, to get people to switch out of cars. And I think this is helpful at setting a set of uh, vision or a set of objectives that you can then work from and start using theory and models to describe what the, uh, diagnose what the um, barriers or drivers might be to any number of these given actions. Uh, when we look at the actual role that was to play. Um, you could look, we looked at the um, website and the user experience and what you might call a, a journey towards getting a voucher and identified using Combi that there were some capability challenges um, in some of the design of the work of requirements to have um, where requirements were signposted for um, need to show identification. Uh, an ID, be that a driver's license or a passport, an official documentation in order to run the scheme um, as quickly as it was uh, and get it out there. A third piece is really important on timing. And uh, when you put theory into practice, you need to make sure the timing is right. Um, and that can be about balancing different priorities. So on the left-hand side is a simplified um, approach research process where you might identify an issue, construct research questions, design work, go into field, analyze your data, report, make recommendations, and then it might not be the researcher themselves, but somebody else would um, take action. Well, on the right, 
concurrently is what um, policy professionals might recognise as ROMEF, uh, which is the way in which a policy would need a rationale, it would need a set of objectives, you'd need to appraise those objectives and, and, and implement, you'd monitor what was going on, evaluate it, and you'd feedback. Well, it's really important that someone that's in a research role and generating evidence slots in at the right time. So you would want your recommendations to come in, um, either perhaps be on hand and available when the set of objectives were being uh, put in place. Uh, or you might want those the, your research to be timely uh, to inform um, the other ongoing evaluation, or there might be a particular uh, other report or combination of measures that are going to come in um, at a certain time. When we think about this um, for the COVID pandemic, we cast our minds back now about two years. Um, there was a self-isolation measure after international travel. Uh, there was a set of uh, traffic lights that you needed to follow uh, to know which country uh, you, when you, when you return from different countries, uh, what the different measures would need to be. And there was different adherence to, uh, to those measures. So you need to wonder, what is preferable messaging and what in different circumstances might we provide as people land in the UK before they arrive at the UK when they're planning their journey into or, or out of the UK and back again? Um, what can you say? Um, now, when you're putting theory into practice, this is where you can bring to bear the studies that were talked about earlier and you can use principles uh, like people's optimism bias uh, towards their hopefulness that their trip will, will go ahead, their optimism that they will, when they land, be successful in being compliant with uh, staying at home. Um, but as the days go by, it can get tougher and tougher to stay at home, both for uh, mental and um, physical and social reasons to stay isolated. You can also bring to bear evidence um, about people's perception of risk, perception of risk, um, both of them contracting um, COVID and also the general efficacy of the, their perception of risk that they would uh, pass it on, uh, which, is a, which, which is all to say these are different ways in which you can construct, and if you look at the study in more detail, um, different treatment groups and different messaging, messaging platforms to then test within um, an online uh, environment, which can then be timely and be brought to bear at the moment of decision uh, of saying what sort of messaging are we going to put out, and indeed, um, how likely would people be to continue to be able to comply um, comply with self-isolation. And I think probably most importantly, um, ruling in or ruling out different measures. So if messaging proves to be ineffective, uh, then does that mean that bigger levers need to be pulled to provide um, financial support, um, social support to enable people um, to stay at home? Fourthly, um, when we put uh, theory into practice, um, and we have evidence available, it's useful to make a distinction between the findings, the, the relatively narrow findings of a study, um, how that study can be interpreted, um, and then what recommendations would actually come out of it. And I think there's often pressure that a um, study 
a study's findings, so what narrowly the, the results of a, a study say, um, and whether or not you can draw that out to say, well, you should or shouldn't do this. So if we um, bring to the previous example, um, an online experiment may demonstrate that one message is preferable to another, um, or it may show that within that environment, um, you can see a certain effect size, but that's then difficult to then say that that whether it's uh, conclusive um, and whether it should direct um, or support a particular course of action. Uh, and I think that's where the interplay between um, a research or an analyst function and a policy professional and then a, ultimately a decision maker uh, comes in. And it's all, all the more important to that actually methods are described clearly so that the uncertainties of a particular piece of research are understood um, and not misinterpreted. A worked example for this sort of thinking um, is the return of people to public transport as COVID measures or the prevalence of COVID, COVID um, eased, um, but there's still a great deal of uncertainty. Um, a significant finding of um, studies was that, um, the social research studies was that people were generally actually slightly counterintuitively uh, in on aggregate in favor of face coverings for the ability for the confidence that they provided um, and the perceived um, efficacy that they had um, in reducing transmission on uh, on transport you can think that there's another mental model that people might be applying that uh, face coverings um, signify danger um, but as you saw with um, say Transport for London's decision to maintain um, face covering requirements. It was both for a precautionary principle of um, of reducing the possibility of future transmission, but also as a way in which it provided um, some confidence to particularly vulnerable users. And of course, this is a behaviour that is both individual but has collective benefits. So um, the um, collective gain of everybody um, being compliant with a face covering um, is, is, is much more significant than any, any one person doing something. Um, in, the, in a study that was run on different messaging, I think there's a useful um, discussion and again link, linked here for, for more that, that would like to read more about it, um, where you have legal requirements um, and we did have legal requirements for, uh, or, or you would face a fixed penalty notice um, for wearing a face covering, what messaging might you also put alongside? So if we think back to the um, uh, combi wheel, we've had legislation and we've had messaging. We are probably all familiar with the uh, posters and billboards that um, uh, reiterated the fixed penalty notice fine and how um, face coverings are a requirement on public transport. What was studied here was the role for additional messaging that pulled on different levers. Within an online experiment um, environment, found that the um, treatment group that was effective in um, changing face covering compliance was also a message that lev leveraged reciprocity um, and uh, pro-social behavior, which read something to the, along the lines of Thank you to the millions of people who are currently wearing their face coverings. And this goes to show that is a difficult balance then that needs to be struck, say in the media buying of what balance of uh, messaging should you put out where and when. 
So at the beginning, you may want to emphasize that something's a legal requirement, but that has diminishing returns. And over time, you might want to provide encouragement, enablement. Um, there are other interventions you could imagine where face coverings were um, abundantly available at railway bus stations. So people always had one to hand. And it could go on and on like this. But it's to say, I think the wheel is a helpful way in saying there are complementary um, interventions to be had here. And that brings to a very nearly final point um, that we can think of behavior change and behavioral science as, as both a mindset and a specialist discipline. I think there's another worthwhile debate about how this goes. Um, but in order to reach scale and in order to reach many of the professionals and, and roles that are involved in ultimately people doing things, it's useful that um, we have a set of basics um, that people understand and they can engage and they can access some of the fundamentals. Um, but there's also needs to be a specialist role, certainly for social research to conduct high quality, um, high quality qualitative and quantitative research. Uh, but a social researcher would probably also want to be um, engaged with identifying behavior, behavior change issues, reviewing the evidence on what works and doesn't work, um, commissioning specialist research and being aware of current and, and changing theories. But as behavioral scientists, there's a technical knowledge in um, developing and advancing further theory, in prioritizing, in sort of critically applying these sort of second order effects um, that we might have of any given intervention. And for me, it's useful, and there are two useful points to be made here. One, I'm an admirer of the wheel, um, not just as a transport enthusiast, but also as a wheel, as a way of it not being a, 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 a being a, not being a priority, not or not having a set list, and enabling us to see that there's a, a range or a spectrum of different disciplines. Um, typically, any given acronym will privilege the first letter in that acronym, for instance. But I think Combi does a remarkable job of saying there's a whole sphere here. But secondly, um, that we might think of behavioral science in, in a way that we also think about data analysis or data science and statistics. We readily accept that there's a minimum standard of numeracy and fluency in even just in descriptive statistics. So understanding the differences of different averages or different um, charts. Uh, but we know that there are higher level skills that are going to be needed on demand. And I think a really good future looks like people being even more fluent in fundamentals of behavior change and behavioral science, bringing that standard up at the same time as um, applying um, specialist skills um, where possible. And to tie this back to some points uh, that Lorraine finished with um, on the net zero strategy, um, we previously saw the forward to that strategy. If you go deeper into what is a very long document, there are a set of signif uh, six significant principles. Uh, and the heading is principles underpinning Green public, green public and business choices. Um, we see the importance of minimizing the ask to send clear regulatory signals, the importance to make green choices the easiest, to make the green choice affordable, to empower businesses and people to make their own choice, uh, to motivate and build public acceptability for major changes. Uh, sickly and finally in the report, um, 
present a clear vision of how we'll get to net zero and what the role of people and business will be. As time goes by, I think there's pause to reflect on what is there, uh, what isn't there. If there were a seventh principle, what would it be? Um, and it's not for me to necessarily say what there is or isn't. Um, but I do think having been here, there's also another job to be done, which is how are these principles then communicated and put into play among the professionals that are in post at the moment and are facing a range of different decisions. Can they point to number four or number two, or can they create policies and justify them in this way? So how do you operationalize these things that are put into documents? So that's something that's um, on my mind. Uh, but we finished there and um, keen to open up for uh, questions if we can. Great, thank you very much, Pete. And um, thank you, Lorraine. Thanks for those uh, excellent presentations. Um, we've got um, a, a number of, uh, of questions and uh, uh, to those um, you know, who've, who've tabled questions, many thanks indeed for doing so. If we don't go through, through all of them, uh, please forgive me, but I'll try to bring out as much as I can from the Q&A uh, of the sort of salient issues that people are raising. Um, I just want to perhaps um, uh, start with the, with the point you ended with, there with Pete, which has come up in a question from Nat Rees, which is how do you influence people to change their behavior when they are in organizations that have to make decisions? So organizational behavior change, if you like, um, where you've got a, a, a private company or a university or a charity uh, where you want to shift uh, behavior in terms of what you know the the goods and services procured sold used etc in an organization perhaps we could uh address that question first because obviously as the question raises there's often a lot of resistance business as usual path dependency that you're trying to shift in an organization perhaps we could um tackle that one first yeah happy to really good question and um Think this is, can be covered this is covered by organizational psychology of how you get any particular message or organizational culture across um i think for this i would see uh, senior leadership or setting an example a positive example is a really really important area of setting the tone uh, for what constitutes positive um, actions within an organization and providing a set of incentives that are consistent with that no sense in saying something at the top, but ultimately people are driven by metrics that um, are quite contrary to that. Um, and if you're starting out, then I think um, I've seen in my experience good effects in starting small and getting a smaller trial or smaller piece of evidence showing of a case study showing applying this makes a difference in this way. It's tangible. Let's do more of it to, to build and build on, on, on those changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think many of the factors that shape our behaviour within other contexts like the home do apply within the workplace, but there will be institutional factors in addition to those things. And that might override, for example, things like, do I care about climate change? I do, but within my job structure, there's just no incentive to, to think about it in the decisions that I'm making or that the physical environment within this office does not enable me to do that. So there will be sort of other organizational workplace factors overlaid, some of those things that, that we know to be relevant within other contexts as well. So uh, yeah, that's a good question. Great, uh, can I ask a, a question? It comes through a, a little bit in, in a couple of different questions, which is the sort of balance between 
waiting for or trying to incentivize behavior to change versus um, making a change, a regulatory or legislative or other change, which then sets a new social norm, which then provides a context for different kinds of behavior. Uh, you both touched on this in different ways in your presentations. The example uh, given um, is often low traffic neighborhoods or uh, congestion charges where um, you know, there's a lot of resistance to those uh, when, they, when they're brought in, uh, then people accommodate and adjust to them. Um, and the argument is often made, well, what you should just do is just make the change and then you'll get public endorsement, legitimacy and support for it. Uh, later. Uh, well, how do you address that kind of qu question in your work? Mm. That's, a, that's a good one. Do you want to start? Or... I think you do. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an easy one. It's a, it's a, it, yeah, we, we think about this a lot in our work because with climate change, I mean, the net zero strategy is a good example because it's very explicit going with the grain of consumer choice. There's no desire within that policy framework to really radically change consumer behavior. It's about kind of where there might be an emerging trend, let's just sort of maybe uh, encourage that along a bit. Um, but actually we know we are going to have to make some pretty profound changes to people's lifestyles. And in many ways people are on board with that, but in some ways they might need, uh, we, we might need the measures to be put in place and then to sort of engage with people to promote sort of policy acceptability of some of those things at the same time. Um, so, uh, yeah, absolutely. And we um, and you're right to point out that quite often people will resist policies that are proposed and then what happens is they're implemented and then they see, oh, actually, they are pretty good and they do improve air quality and they do, you know, I, I can get to work quicker. So they, the policy acceptance follows the implementation of the policy. So that, that can certainly happen. But, but this is where I, I mean, I did mention engagement. It is absolutely critical to understand why, why there might be some pretty legitimate concerns about policies. And we saw that with the Gilets jaunes in France, um, that these were policies that were very well-intentioned in terms of, for example, reducing emissions, but actually they were not workable for significant parts of the population because they were not able to travel to work anymore. It was just not, not gonna be uh, economically feasible for, for that, those groups. So without a really thorough understanding of the differential impacts of different policies on groups and how that might be perceived as fair or unfair, for example, mm. uh, those policies are not necessarily gonna work, be workable. So it's absolutely the case that policymakers can provide leadership and, and do quite ambitious things, but it does need to be accompanied by an understanding of how the public are gonna be responding to those things and, and bringing people with you and engaging with, with you. So it's a, it's a, it's a, ten, it's a difficult one, mm -hmm. I don't know. If, you had any thoughts? Um, I come to mind a quote, which is a principle isn't a principle and until, until it costs you something. And there's a certain amount of perseverance that needs to come through um, when implementing principles. Um, but I think you can use, so there are, I'm optimistic that there are some research methods available that could get a better handle over the public acceptability or tolerance for particular changes. I know that CAST last year in uh, accompanying uh, with, with Ipsos um, did really good work on looking at um, different public support for different policies. Now, some of the findings with that were that, um, again, people are people will support green policies up to a point at which it costs them something. Um, but there's more that could be done in maybe structuring the, in different policies or finding ways in which people can be amenable uh, to change mm -hmm. and more public engagement to, to, to continue the conversation. Yeah. And I would just add as well, it's interesting that 
I think quite often amongst the policy communities, there may be an assumption that the public will oppose something when actually the evidence sometimes suggests the public are already there and quite far ahead and supporting some of those things. So actually, low traffic neighbourhoods is a good example, because broadly speaking, the pub, more of the public is supportive of those things than is opposed. But there sometimes is a very vocal minority that seems to sort of give the impression that, oh, this will never fly kind of thing. So uh, it, it can be important just to dig into like to what extent would the public support this and it may, it may there may be more of a, a, a mandate for policymakers to act than, than is assumed yeah yeah can, can we just start on this question of cost we've got a couple of questions about um the sort of costs of action pete just uh, mentioned these and in both of your presentations you uh touched on these questions uh when the costs seem uh long term and far away that behaviour change is less likely than if the costs are more immediate and uh, the the costs of inaction um, are more uh, immediate. That people, uh, particularly on when it comes to environmental change, might think, well, that's for 2030 or that's for 2050, and policymakers are telling them that the targets are for 2030 and 2050. So they go, OK, I don't have to change my gas boiler just yet or my, my, my electric car. Whereas if we were faced with a more immediate challenge and a more immediate um, requirement and the cost to inaction was clearly high uh, would we change our behavior more rapidly and that's what one sort of question and the other related to that comes through in an earlier question which is um, and Lorraine you touched on this in your presentation um, uh, is it problematic when people are uh, when people confront something in ways that is very, very fearful. So if they think the, that climate change is incredibly scary and fearful, that you're demotivated from action because it's just too big a problem, uh, it's going to consume us all and there's nothing you can really do about it. Yes, uh, all good questions. Um, you might have more to say on costs. I'm, I'm not an economist, so but I, I yes, you're absolutely right that if you present something as being something like distant, uh, either in time or in space, then people will tend to sort of deprioritize that. Um, so they do focus on things that are relevant to the here and now. But while climate change can certainly feel like something that is very distant spatially, it's happening, it's, right, it's kind of for people in developing countries more than here, or it's for future generations to worry about. Uh, and there's, there's some truth to that, but it is obviously in increasingly affecting us in the here and now. Um, we can also think about when we know about the, the, the various motivations and drivers of behavior that, that, are, that, that are relevant, um, that there are other things that are very uh, immediate and pressing, like cost of living crisis, for example, uh, or in some cases, maybe health concerns and, and, other, and other things that are very sort of immediate for people. And then actually prioritize messaging and, and, and measures that focus on some of those wider proximal co-benefits of action. So in the here and now, this might be about energy saving that reduces bills and um, also reduces emissions because yes, people are, are understandably worried right now about how they're going to pay their bills. So this is this is why we need to be um, emphasizing these wider benefits. And that does relate to the second point about fear, which is I think it only works in certain situations to motivate people. And you have to be very careful that you don't go too far into that kind of just apathy and demotivation and people feeling like there's nothing they can do and so switching off and so we've done a bit of work on climate anxiety for example um and it's we know that while it's not sort of um very prevalent amongst the population actually and for those people that do feel very anxious about climate change uh they they can that can be a motivator to action 
to do certain things to, to reduce their carbon footprint, but it can be, it can spill over into just complete sort of feeling powerless and unable to do anything. Um, and so it is about kind of highlighting that there's a problem, but actually having a much stronger solution framing to the, the communications that we have. So say, these are things that we can do. These are things that people are already doing. These are things, this is how you can do these things. So really focus on the solutions much more, I think. Mm -hmm. I will interpret the question, but I think there's a bigger, because there's a bigger point to be made here of um, treating people like average, shall I say. So um, where we talk about, say, boilers or fuel costs, there can be concentrated winners or losers to a particular policy. And one of the problems is that we don't have a, I don't think any country has a particularly great handle of the data on, on given households and different household segments. So some households spent bills look like very high heating bills, but maybe lower transport bills. Other households have are very reliant on fuel uh, and therefore very sensitive to fuel costs, but might be less sensitive to um, to uh, boiler and household heating costs. But if we could have a better picture of the different uh, segments, we might be able to get a bit closer to saying, OK, you can make this amount of change here, but you're already making this change here. If we treat people like average, then we assume that everyone has the same uh, um, um, opportunity and ability to 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 make uh, to make changes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, thanks, Pete. I've just got a uh, one actually that that may be best directed to you in the first instance, Pete, which is from a uh, from Jackie in Chew Valley saying that they're withdrawing bus services, replacing them with DRT services. A um, lot of shock and anger about that, despite extensive discussion consultation uh you know q a facebook groups etc um and I, I suppose this is just a, a question about when you've got a very big change like this in modal shift which affects a, a community um uh you know what can be done to uh, get people to take up the new service except that the change is coming um uh where i mean you you talked earlier about the sort of messaging that you might engage with when you're when you're dealing with the public or any, you know when, when the use of public transport modal shift uh you know face masks in, in your earlier example um so just a very specific point there about uh when you are completely changing the mode of transport in this case bus services in ways that you think will be beneficial in climate terms but there's a lot of shock and anger i think is are the phrases used there by jackie yeah, and that shock and anger might be based in some, um, yeah, cal calculated and reflective um, difference in the service provision. I don't know. I must say I haven't scrutinised them, but it will also, we, I think it's fair to say, be be looked at at the not just what it is, but what the risk and consequences is if it doesn't uh, if it doesn't live up to standards. Because we're talking about people's lives here, so it's not just necessary. It's not sort of. Bus, it's not just a bus trip it's a it's an ability to access employment or to provide caring responsibilities or to do any number of um, things that are meaningful and important to people mm. um, I think I would agree that you need to go beyond say a, an online experiment where you simply sim you you present different propositions because um, there's more to it than that um, ideally you'd be able to trial DRT but you can't really uh, trial it trial this sort of for people less familiar sort of, sort of dynamic uh, dial a ride minibus service you can't really trial it alongside an existing bus service because your users will need to pick um one or the other um having engaged a little bit with um 
the politics of uh, or, or around uh, around the west of England area. I think the Metro Mayor Dan Norris is trying to lead a, lead lead the way in saying there is a certain leadership and trust element of saying this is the technology we've evaluated it, uh, we're bringing it in, come along with us. Um, but yeah, I uh, see how much needs to be done there. Great, thanks, um, Lorraine. Can I ask you a question? It's come up at the end here from in from Emma, but I think it's also in some other questions as well. Same sort of insight, which is. Um, the role of autonomy and the sense of autonomy and self-determination in in behavior change. So, or, you know, if, if you like the sort of uh, the caricature of nudges often that, um, you know, uh, you're applying nudges because people are irrational. They take shortcuts. They employ heuristics. Uh, they're not actually acting in rationally autonomous, self-determined ways. And yet um, a, a lot of theory would tell us that actually people value agency and autonomy and they actually you know engaging with them as autonomous agents uh, is incredibly important do you have a, a, a view on that yeah i mean i think that's absolutely right so nudge can be an effective tool in a toolbox uh, and it's attractive to policymakers because uh, it doesn't take away choice very often it just sort of enables people to it just sort of well nudges people it just does things under the radar to facilitate people making uh, better choices. Um, but it doesn't work in all cases. And particularly where we're working in climate change, the amount of change that the, the, the amount of transformation that we're going to need in order to reach net zero uh, needs, it's going to be very explicit. It's going to be very disruptive to people's lives. It's going to challenge our various cultural norms around consumption and quality of life and, and sort of aspirations that people might have. It's, it, it addresses issues of fairness and so on. So if we're really going to actually do this properly and, and really cut our emissions profoundly uh, and, and rapidly, we're going to have to need to engage with people at a very conscious, explicit level. And this is why I touched on things like citizens assemblies, those more sort of deliberative democratic processes that bring people in to more actively shape policy um, in, in, than, so, than simply kind of here's a policy, yeah, just con consulting sort of relatively late on in the process. Um, so I think that's quite profound, but also we need this wider. And so one of the things that I, I mostly, there are lots of things I don't know about the net zero strategy, but it did say that we do need to have, a, to co communicate to the public a vision of where we're going. Ideally, that vision would be co-created with the public so that we're sharing actually something that we all want to be moving towards. Um, but actually, I don't think there is that, sen that, sh that sense of like, where are we going with this? What are the changes going to be required? What am I going to need to do as part of this? There is an assumption it's all going to happen on the supply side with a bit of tinkering here and there. Technology is mostly going to fix it. But actually, that's not really true. So we absolutely are going to need to engage people. So once we've got that shared vision and, and that sense of engagement, then some of the nudge things can be slotted in. And so we could use defaults because we know they work in certain situations, but they're not going to work for lots of things like getting people out of cars and onto buses and things. That's you can't nudge people onto a bus service if it doesn't exist. So that there are going to be lots of other measures that we're going to need. And we're going to need some pretty explicit consent for that, I think. Yes. And that presumably picks up the point you ended with when you said government strategy can't just pretend that this will all happen through the market or happen through us, you know, not changing our behavior very much in non-threatening ways. There are some things where we have to be completely upfront uh, and address the challenges that we face. And as you say, there are democratic mechanisms for doing that uh, available uh, to us. Can I ask about just, um, I mean, if, again, it's come through in, in, a, in a number of different questions in different ways, and that's about the sort of speed of change. So climate change 
you know, incredibly urgent now. The science is telling us every year that it's getting more urgent that we, we, that we take the action in the short term to address uh, 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 t uh, climate change. And uh, whether there is anything in the literature about forms of behaviour change that are sort of more or less not just more or less efficacious, i.e. between 3% or 100%, but uh, which happen at speed and scale. So are there certain kinds of behaviour change intervention which can have a rapid effect uh, and, and, and perhaps also a, a, a bigger scale? Or are, they just, are they just legislative and regulatory, those? I mean, you know, is that just a matter of, you know, stopping well, I think, people? I think those tend to be very effective and in a fairly short time frame, basically. But... There, there, we struggle actually to answer that question effectively because we try to look for exemplars of how can you do this quickly because I gave the example of smoking as to mm. how you can have a, a really big shift in behavior but it is over like 50 years or something yes. that we've got from from lots of people smoking to not very many people smoking um, and, and so that was an interesting sort of this is the sequencing of kind of ramping up to sort of regulation ultimately after doing lots of other things first but we don't really have the the, the, the luxury of time in, in this case to, to wait 50 years before we get to that uh, stage. So we're going to need to compress these timescales for sure. And if we're going to build in this kind of engagement, deliberative stuff that that will that, you know, we can't just do things without um, without engaging. So we are going to have to build that into the timescales. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that is going to be a challenge, how to do this quickly and democratically. Um, I don't know if you've got any sort of good examples to hand as to where that might have worked a bit better. I was only reflect, thinking of reflecting on changes that have happened in our recent past. It, I was looking at statistics uh, the other day. In the past 15 years, smartphone penetration has gone from something like 4% of UK adults to now 93% of UK adults. And mm -hmm. the fastest growing group are the over 55-year-old category. Um, so if we cast our minds back, it wouldn't have been a, a webinar um, then, uh, but it might have been an in-person um, um, meeting. Uh, things, devices that we have in our hands do have an incredible power. Obviously, they're connected. They change people's travel behaviors. They give you live routing information. You can travel anywhere at a moment's notice. Um, they provide some entertainment and, and use while traveling. I'm just thinking about if you were to, in 2008, have mandated or set an objective that uh, over nine in 10 adults would carry a, what was then mostly just an iPhone in their hands, they might have balked at it, but mm -hmm. it became pretty popular pretty quickly and it has changed a lot of our mm -hmm. behaviors, but always in ways in which we would um, we would find desirable, but, but that's technology in many ways. Mm -hmm. And that brings us to the questions of tipping points and when policy can enable tipping points to, to, to take place. Pete, I wonder, there's a couple of um, uh, questions about policymakers and change how, how the, you change their behaviour. You've been a civil servant, you know, you've worked with the politicians um, uh, and you talked to, uh, towards the end of your presentation about, you know, what makes for a good policy development process in terms of the evidence you marshal and how you present it and and the options and the costs and benefits of different options that, that you appraise. But have you got any advice for people on, on sort of thinking like a politician or a policymaker uh, when you're presenting evidence and argument uh, that gets the sort of um, change that you want to see? Um, yeah, good question and a, and a, and a fair one. Um, I have had an insight. I'm not about, I'm not, I won't uh, diminish everything, but I've had a relatively short insight into these, uh, into this world, but enough to probably see that 
many decisions decisions need to be do need in this organizational structure to be defensible and it's significant that you need to say i I, there's a sort of expectation of sort of cause and effect that I've made this judgment because on balance this evidence or this set of reasoning. So to empower or enable people to um, be able to do that. Um, and that is about providing the quality of evidence that you can say this was an, a, a, an experimental design that is strong enough to say, you know, we know enough now that we can do this and not that. Um, mm -hmm. I do still come back to the importance and responsibility of communicating evidence in a in a fair way and a transparent way. Both the evidence that you uh, might collect in um, as primary research, if you're in a if you're a policymaker, you commission various research, or the data, the sources of data that you're, you're using um, to 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 make decisions, and that might be acquired by some other agency or data source. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. there is there is an evidence base on on you know on this in terms of the political science of how our policymakers make decisions, and mm. I don't know it very well, but I, I certainly know that the the quality of evidence is important in terms of shaping those decisions. But there will, of course, be things like ideological factors, relationships, and so on that will be so much more important often. Um, and so this is why we kind of see no matter how many times we present the evidence that behavior change is needed and we need to reduce demand, it just goes completely counter to the ideological sort of filter within sort of central government that is like, well, we just can't go there kind of thing. So so just the best evidence presented in the best way doesn't always get translated, unfortunately. Yeah, I think we could do a, a whole other seminar on the political science of these things and the political economy of them too. And as you say, there's a, there's a, an extensive literature about these sorts of questions. Um, one final one, Lorraine, if I may, which is just um, uh, Peter Allen asking about um, the Chris Gibble's Net Zero review and whether uh, there was enough about the role of behaviour change in meeting net zero targets in that review, um, compared perhaps to the House of Lords report that you were an advisor to. Yeah, yes. I, I thought the Skidmore review was actually really good, I have to say. There was a really big chunk of uh, work on behaviour change within there. There was stuff on engaging communities as well as the business um, community and others. Um, and it recognised a lot of the things that were said in the House of Lords review as well, and, and in the wider evidence base, really, about the need to not just communicate to the public. We do need to do that better, but to enable and to, to really... Um, remove the barriers to behavior change and to provide much stronger incentives and regulations and various other things too. So there was quite a strong focus on, I think, the built environment and energy use within homes and so on. But nevertheless, the key message was government needs to go way further than they're currently doing to enable behavior change. So there was, and it emphasized those co-benefits. So it really talks about not just the economic co-benefits, but like health co-benefits, community benefits, various other things that actually suggests that you know there's lots of reasons we should be doing this not just um to reduce emissions so yeah i thought it was very good actually great okay well thank you very much lorraine thank you pete we are um just about out of out of time i want to thank everybody for attending the, the seminar today and for all the fantastic questions i think we had 37 questions which is uh, great and um just before we came on air uh the the, the government announced that there would be the, a new department for energy and net zero being created so whitehall has got a new focus on these 
issues. And so uh, this kind of discussion that we've been having today, the evidence marshal for public policy change now has, as, as it were, a new locus in Whitehall, which I'm sure we can all start to think about uh, in the weeks and months ahead. But thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us today. Do stay in touch with the work of both uh, the, the centre cast for, um, uh, for for climate change, social transformation that uh, Lorraine uh, is the director of, and also with the Institute for Policy Research, um, my own institute. Do stay in touch with our work. As I said at the beginning, we will post up a, 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 a podcast and a video of today's presentation. So lots of the references you'll be able to see in the slides and everything that, that was made available today. But of course, if you have any questions, do get in touch. I'm sure we'll be able to reply to them. So thanks very much to Pete and Lorraine. Thanks very much for great presentations. Uh, thanks to you all for joining us. Uh, and we'll call it uh, a day there. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you.